0: With the police banging on the door. Open up. The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man. A year later, I ended up right in the system.
1: I'm going to be one of those people who
2: everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to have to come to
0: peace with that. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't.
2: I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution.
1: And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man.
3: This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I'm particularly thrilled, actually even a little nervous, because I have two of my heroes in the studio today. Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three.
1: In May 1993, three young Arkansas boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore
0: went missing. Three little Cub Scouts hogtied and left in an Arkansas ditch. One of the most controversial legal cases in the state's history. A jury found the man guilty of murdering the eight-year-old boys back in 1993 in what prosecutors at the time had called some sort of a satanic ritual. The
3: celebrities fighting for the teens' release claimed the kids were railroaded because of their mullets, dark clothes, and fascination with the occult. Sickening killings
4: that might have been part of a satanic ritual.
6: Convicted murderers Jason Baldwin,
3: Jesse Miss Kelly, and Damian Eccles are now free men. They spent 17 years in prison for a crime that stunned Arkansas. The West Memphis Three would be allowed to walk out of prison, but prosecutors agreed to sign off on the deal only if the defendants would plead guilty.
4: Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. It is a pleasure to be here.
3: We also have in the studio today a recidivist guest.
2: Proud recidivist. A
3: repeat offender on <laughs> wrongful conviction. The one and only Barry Shack, co-founder of the Innocence Project. Barry, welcome. Great to be here. So, Jason, let's turn to you to start with. You have lived the most bizarrely extraordinary life, having been wrongfully convicted at 16 and then spending more than half your life in maximum security prison. Let's go back to the beginning in Arkansas. You grew up in a very poor area, rural poor areas, but nonetheless, things were
4: pretty good. Yeah. My family had gone through a series of hardships, especially my mother. We had an abusive alcoholic stepfather, but at this time she had strengthened herself and we had kind of kicked him out because he was just So dangerous to us and our family. And she had gotten a job in Memphis as a truck dispatcher. And so we had like a family plan. The trailer we were living in, my grandmother left us. So we were landowners. We didn't really have to pay rent. We just had to pay bills. My mother had a car, it was paid for. And so the idea was that we would work hard. My mom would work hard and save up the money, and we would be able to move back to Memphis, Tennessee to a house, and then we could rent our trailer out. And so we were in this huge process of building our lives up again. One day, one of the worst
3: crimes probably in history of America happens in this little town that you live in. Three little eight year old boys were out riding their bikes and they disappeared. Correct. And were you aware at the time that there were these boys who had disappeared?
4: No, I didn't. I remember where I was when I first became aware. It was May the 6th, a Thursday I was at school. And in the school we had televisions, and usually the televisions were reserved for like programs related to the class and stuff we were taking in. But they just stopped class all of a sudden, turned the TV on, and everybody got quiet and it was a news bulletin saying they had just found the three boys' bodies. So apparently they had been searching for the boys all night. At the time, I wasn't aware of that. When I became aware, they had already found them. And and everybody was, like, just freaked out about it. Yeah, I'm getting the chills thinking about it now. I mean, in a small town. For me, you know, I, I just remember thinking it could have been my little brother, and I was scared. You know, and when I got home... From school, my mom had stayed from work so she could see us, you know, because normally she she left for work at 2.30 in the afternoon and we get back home at 10.30 at night from the trucking agency where she worked as a dispatcher. And it was my job to, you know, watch after my brothers and things like that. So she was there. She's like, hey, they found these boys They were murdered. They don't know who did it yet. I want y'all to stay at home until they find who is responsible and just watch after each other.
3: So how many days went by before
4: they started looking at you guys as possible suspects? And it started with Damien, right? I think they went and questioned Damien immediately. Like the boys' bodies were found Thursday. They questioned him Friday.
3: Right. And that was because he was known in the community as being a guy who wore black clothes, listened to heavy metal music. He was goth. Right. He was a goth kid. He was goth
4: before the word was coined. Right.
3: Right. And, And you were just his friends. Correct. I was his best friend. And he's an interesting guy. I mean, from everything I've read and seen of him, he's a very intelligent guy. And he's a very interesting and introspective guy.
4: One day I was biking home and I passed him in front of his house and he was skateboarding. I was like, oh, I know you. I've seen you in study hall. He goes, yeah, me and my family, we just moved out here. I was like, cool skateboard. He's like, you want to skate on it? And I was like, cool. And next thing I know, he's riding my bike around. I'm skateboarding on his skateboard. And and it just developed from there. Great friendship. When this all came down, you were in 10th grade? 10th grade. 10th grade. Let's just reflect on
3: that for a second. You're not even anywhere near being an adult in 10th right. grade. All of a sudden, things got really, really serious. Friday, 24 hours after the bodies are discovered, they're already talking to Damien. Correct. When were you made aware that you were actually going to be wrapped well, up in this somehow? the
4: next day, they came to my house and knocked on the door, and Detective Allen, Detective Ridge, they came and summoned me, Damien and Dominique out of my house. Of course, I was still there babysitting my brothers, you know, because they haven't found whoever did this crime yet, so the orders from my mom is still the same. We got to stay at home and I got to babysit. And so when the police came, honestly, it didn't really scare me or alarm me because I figured they were going everywhere. I figured it was door to door, you know, that they were talking to everybody they could, you know. And to me, that made sense. You know, that was logical. But what I didn't know that they were targeting us and the reason they were targeting us was When I was 11 years old, when I first moved to Arkansas from Memphis, Tennessee, and spent that summer there, I was 11. My brother Matthew was 9. My little brother Terry was 6. The trailer park was full of kids. It had a lake, and we made friends fast. We swam in the lake every day. We played hide-and-go-seek out in the soybean and cotton fields. Well, out in the middle of the cotton field, there was this old tin shack, and it had been there so long that a tree— grown up and lifted the roof off of the building and pushed the wall in and so for generations kids had been playing hide and go seek there but one day the cops showed up and arrested all of us all the kids of the trailer park took us to the police station called our parents to come get us and everything and to make a long story short When I ended up going to court, and, of course, all the kids in the trailer park ended up going to court, the um, prosecution told the judge, I think two years in the state reform school would do these kids some good. And our public defender, Mr. Montgomery, said, I agree, Your Honor. And at that time, my mom jumped up and said, my sons aren't going to prison which basically what reform school is. is You were how old? Prison for children. I was 11. You were 11. My brother Matthew was nine. And in the range of ages of these kids, which was almost every kid in the neighborhood, was anywhere from nine to I think the oldest kid was 14. But when my mom objected, the judge called them up to the bench Next thing I know, instead of two years in the state reform school, I've got five years probation and a $500 fine. And for my mom, that was a $1,000 fine because she had two sons. Our friends down the street, she had four of her kids affected by it. For playing and hide-and-seek. For playing hide-and-go-seek. Did now, you know that was illegal in Arkansas, Barry? Because I didn't know they that. They gave <laughs> us criminal – they charged us with criminal trespassing and Jesus breaking and ending. Right? And – I remember our family budget for Christmas was only a hundred dollars, right? And so now I'm on the record, right? I have a record. I have what's called a criminal record. And honestly, it really wasn't that bad. It wasn't that scary. I had a probation officer. I would have to go to his office, me and my brother would, and he would look at our case and he didn't even, he didn't look at us like we were criminals because we weren't. He would, buy us soda pops and ask well how we were doing in school ask us for our report cards and stuff and of course when i was at school sometimes i'd be in class and intercom would come on and they'd say uh send jason to the principal's office you know and i would go to the principal's office and there would be mr jones i'm just checking in on you you know and this went on for you know until before i got locked up i became used to it and so that's how i got a record when damien came into the picture he still suffered the prejudice of the rest of us kids out even though he didn't have a record, right, but because he suffered the prejudice of it.
2: You know, I didn't know this part of the story. So how could the public defender just immediately agree with the court and say, yeah, they ought to be convicted of a crime for playing
4: hide-and-seek? That's what he did. And you would think that the prosecutor would be on the benefit of the people, the kids, right? A reasonable person, a reasonable prosecutor, a reasonable officer of the law would have just called our parents, not charged us and says, hey- I know y'all have been playing hide-and-go-seek at this place for years, but y'all just don't do that anymore.
3: I mean, of course, obviously. Right? it's, it's, so, it's so, and, and it's interesting, Jason, because we see this now in in poor and urban communities especially, where they do these sweeps and they pick up everybody with a stop-and-frisk and all this other stuff, and all of a sudden, everybody's got a record. And then when right. something happens, is all of a sudden, you're the guy who's got a record, exactly. even though you didn't do anything wrong. So now- Everything goes completely haywire, and you guys get arrested.
4: Correct. I remember when I was arrested, thanks to public media, I was expecting things when I was arrested. I was expecting a fingerprints. I was expecting a mugshot, and I was expecting a phone call. They mugshotted me, but when they fingerprinted me, they didn't stop there. They took a fingerprint. They took an entire hand impression. They, they took my entire footprints. Right. And then they took me to the hospital and they took hair samples. They took saliva samples. They took blood samples. And now at this point, I had already been engaged with the police and they had asked me, you know, questions and stuff. And I told them where I was at and they absolutely refused the truth. They kept telling me, no, we've got another story. Your friend has told us that you have done this and that what you're telling us is not true. I'm like, well, who is this friend? And they refused to tell me. And honestly, I thought they were lying. I'm like, no one has told you that I'd done this because I didn't do this. It was like I was just arguing with a brick wall. I couldn't make them understand where I was at and what I was doing. So. When they were taking these samples from me, it gave me hope because I thought, okay, whoever committed this crime has left a footprint, has left a handprint, has left a hair sample, has left a saliva sample or has left a blood sample. They've left something for the police to compare my samples to. Right. And so that's where my hope was. Now, a couple of months go by and I'm in the county jail and they have to take all these samples from me again because they didn't have a court order for it. And I'm like, please take them from me. You can take them today. You can take them tonight. You can take them every day until you are able to prove that I am innocent. But what you're saying is that you actually did
3: believe that they were after the truth, which you would hope in a small community like that, you would think that if for no other reason than a selfish reason that the authorities would want to get this bad, evil guy out of the circulation and get him in prison so that their family's not victimized next, because that's a real possibility.
4: Exactly. But that wasn't what was happening. That wasn't the case. I was totally surprised when I went to trial, and instead of the narration of the story revolving around evidence, the prosecutor, John Fogelman, and Brenton Davis were saying things like the crime scene was completely clean, there was absolutely no evidence, no physical evidence left behind, and this, in fact, is evidence of satanic cult ritual activity. Right, because the devil right. cleaned up the crime scene,
2: basically. And- but when did they get the confession from Jesse Miss Kelly?
4: It was on June the 3rd of 1993, the day that we were arrested. Like, they got the confession from him earlier dinner and day, and then they came and arrested us. They used that to get the warrant. And that's what they were telling
2: you when they said we have a friend.
4: Exactly. So, but Jesse was a friend of yours though, right? The first time I met Jesse was in the sixth grade when I first started school in Marion. I was on the playground and I saw out the corner of my eye somebody rushing towards me really fast, right? And I looked and next thing I know a fist is coming for my face. So I ducked and I ran and it was Jesse. He chased me all around the playground, around the merry-go-round, around the swing set. I was the new kid, you know? And next Next thing I know, this girl, Donna Spurlock, comes running up and stops. Jesse says, Jesse, Jesse, stop, stop. Promise me, Jesse, you will leave him alone. And he gave her his word that he would leave me alone, and he never messed with me. How about that Donna
3: Spurlock? Shout out to Donna on the show. Donna, thank you. Way to go, girl. Now,
4: years later, he would move down the street from me. You know, we got to know each other a little bit for a few months until he moved again to Highland Trailer Park when I never got to see him again. So Jesse, and this is where we turn to Barry. In this case,
3: you had sort of a typical situation, right? Jesse had a very low IQ. Right? I think his IQ was as low as 72.
4: 72. Right.
3: He was a teenager. Jesse basically was the perfect target for an unscrupulous detective or interrogator to extract a confession from. And
2: the statistics are shocking on the number of juveniles that give false confessions, but particularly juveniles in homicide cases. You know, when we're talking about people that were wrongfully convicted of murders and were sentenced to death— There's an extraordinarily high percentage of juveniles involved. The, The numbers are actually stunning to the point where the American Psychological Association, when they wrote this white paper on what are the risk factors for false confessions, age is one of them. And we've long known that, but this was the perfect storm type case. It's a horrible, horrible murder in a small town that causes really a panic in the community and they start looking for the other they look for the strange person damien and then they get jason baldwin his good friend and then they find the the most vulnerable person to sort of feed their version of events to Correct. it
4: turns out to be jesse Miskelly. and from there Bad things let, let me add this that most people don't know that's in the record of this case. The boys' bodies were found May the 6th. We were arrested June 3rd. Jesse Muskelly gave the false confession on June 3rd. But what many people have not really noticed that on May the 15th, just a couple of weeks after the boys' bodies were found, Jesse went to the police with another friend because there was a tip line and a reward offered out for any information on who may have committed this crime. Now, Jesse did not know who committed this crime, but he wanted the reward money. He was imagining the brand new truck he could buy his father and things like that. So him and another kid out of his trailer park went to the police and said, there's this suspicious guy in the town that, you know, you need to um, check out. And I don't know exactly what all he told them about this guy or whatever, but they ended up telling him, Jesse, you need to come back with a more believable story than that, right. right? A few weeks come by, go by, now they're saying they've got that believable story when he gives the false confession against Damien and me.
3: Right, and we know kids that age, especially with low mental capacity, are so susceptible to suggestion. A, they want to please the police. They want to be accepted. They want to be sort of almost heroic in a certain sense. You're trapped in this room with people you're totally overmatched, intellectually, in terms of authority, in terms of power. uh, You're scared. Uh, You want to go home. They're allowed to lie to you, which they do. Yes, they are. And it's actually been shown that in many cases, you can convince an adolescent that he actually did the crime that he didn't do and get them to confess that way. You get them so confused with this psychological protocol, which is the Reed method or other methods, Correct. that they eventually just they confess to something that they may actually believe they did, even though they didn't do it. So Jesse was the perfect target. He confessed. And then it's all downhill from there because we know that a confession is the most powerful piece of evidence that you Correct. can have in a courtroom. It overrides DNA in the eyes of a jury. We've seen right. it over and over again, which is
4: insane. It's psychologically overwhelming to people. You never want to think that you would admit to doing something you didn't do. You always want to think that you have a strong willpower, that you you would not cave in under these coercive pressures. But that's blaming the victim. And Lee. it's
3: paradoxical too, Jason, right? Because almost everyone's had the experience, especially when they were an adolescent, of lying and saying they didn't do something that they did do. But almost <laughs> no one's had the experience of actually confessing to something that they didn't do. So for a jury, it's so foreign because they're like, wow, well, that not make no sense to me. Well, that's one of the reasons we're working so hard on getting videotaping of interrogations. Right.
2: And, you know, if there had been a videotape of the Jesse Miss Kelly interrogation, I think we would have found out that most of the details in there were probably fed facts. Things that the police believed to be true, but they suggested to him. And that's what's so extraordinary. Jerry Buting, who was the lawyer for Stephen Avery and was featured in Making a Murderer, just wrote a book called Illusion of Justice. It's a very good book about his life story and his career. But the one thing that he pointed out that is kind of amazing is that the Innocence Movement was able to get videotaping of interrogations as a reform in Wisconsin, but just for juveniles. And it's for that reason that we were able to get a videotape of the Brendan Dassey interrogation, which I think... You know, had an enormous impact in this country because people could literally see how the facts were fed to him and his uh, disability, essentially, and mental impairment, and how how that can happen. And you know, when you actually look at the statistics on false confessions in the Innocence Project DNA exonerations, Brandon Garrett has done an analysis showing that. In 80% of the cases where innocent people, proven by DNA, give false confessions, 80% of the cases, they are confessing to details that only the police and the real perpetrator would know. So how did that happen? (laughs) Other than the police feeding them the facts. So the videotaping is critically important. And I wager that uh, none of you would have ever been arrested if they videotaped that interrogation. Or certainly, the charges wouldn't have lasted that long.
1: how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline.
5: Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a
1: great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.
6: What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
3: Sitting in that courtroom. It's got to be just the most surreal and terrifying experience. You didn't testify, because why, why would you? You didn't have done anything, I guess, right? I mean... Well,
4: honestly, I thought I was going to testify. I talked to my attorneys. I told them where I was at, and I, I wanted to testify, and they assured me. I had my alibis, my great-granduncle, whose yard I was mowing that day. I needed him to testify, and they were like, do you have anybody that would have seen you or known you where you were at that day that was not your friend that was not your family member that would not have so-called reason to lie for you and I remember I was thinking you know what everything I did that day I played it over my mind a million times and I was like after I mowed my uncle's yard I was at Walmart and I spent a dollar of the money that my uncle paid me uh, to get us each a soda and we played a video game and there was this Asian kid standing next to us, waiting on us to get through playing. I didn't know the guy. I didn't know what his name was or anything. But I remembered him standing there and watching us play, waiting on us to get through so he could play, right? So I said, if you could find him, he has no connection to me and no reason to lie in the eyes of the law. He can verify everything I say is true. And my attorneys actually found this guy and he actually told them, you know, exactly the truth that he saw me at Walmart playing video games and I did not look like I'd committed a murder or was about to go commit a murder or anything. He wasn't called. Nobody was called. I wasn't called. And next thing I know, my trial was over with. Your trial was over with. and It was over with, and I did not get called or any of my witnesses.
2: But so upsetting about this case. And, you know, it starts, frankly, with the public defender that's pleading you guilty to a misdemeanor. Not even pleading you guilty, he's saying, I think it's a good idea that exactly. you go get probation for a misdemeanor for playing hide-and-seek through this trial. Because the Arkansas public defense system, as I recall it, there had been a case where there had been a finding that it was unconstitutionally underfunded. And the three lawyers that were representing, Damien, yourself, and uh, Jesse, Miss Kelly, didn't have adequate funds. I don't think people fully appreciated that the lawyers didn't have money, that they were even given $5,000 per client as money for investigators or experts. Uh, which there's some question as to whether they ever spent it on that, uh, because they were so short of uh, funds that they couldn't do an adequate defense. And they waived their right in the state of Arkansas to take this trial out of the media market. They had a right to keep cameras out of the courtroom. And in a case like this, where there's whole ridiculous prosecution is being done on the grounds of Satanism and community panic, it's just all very troubling. And I think that the heart of it is, uh, unless you have a well-funded, robust system for giving people, lawyers, particularly charged with murder in these serious cases and juveniles, adequate counsel, The whole system implodes on itself in some horrible, terrible way. You never had a chance.
3: A couple of things really stuck out to me. One was when they put that guy on the stand who was testifying as an expert on Satanism and witchcraft and all this that stuff, nonsense. right? And the defense attorney, quite rightly, said to him, where did you get certified at this? And it turned out he had spent like an hour doing some online something or whatever. It was, was ridiculous. It was laughable, right? The Great. fact that he was calling himself an expert was laughable. And that's right. one thing that I was like, well, the jury's got to hear that. And the other thing was when they had the doctor on the stand, Right. It was like an orthopedic surgeon or something, whatever he was. And they were asking him about the fact, the way that the one boy had been mutilated. Right. And he had the skin cut off his penis. I mean, it was really pretty disgusting even thinking about it now. Which we
4: found out later was animal Animal predation. Animals had actually started eating their bodies in the water that they were submerged in. And so when the police pulled Jesse into the police station and they laid out the photos of the bodies, they had him make up a story for all the visible wounds. The cause and manner of the wounds were unknown. They didn't know that all these wounds were animal predation.
3: There's so much more to the story and I want to get to it. But the other things that were so bizarre was the fact that they never investigated the restaurant manager, the boat. Jangles, who called up and said there's a There there's a black guy who came in bleeding all over the place. He went right into the women's bathroom. I mean, right there, there's two things that if I'm a cop, I'm going, you know what? I'm going to, yeah, covered in mud. Like, I'm going to be like, you know what? That's either a crazy-ass coincidence, or I better get my ass over there, and I better go find out whatever the fuck there is to find out about this, because that's weird, right? And maybe it was a coincidence, because we don't know if that guy was a killer, and we'll probably never know, but that's weird. And the cop just came and sort of went up to the drive-thru. Might as well order a Diet Coke while she was there. She didn't even bother to go in side right. and look at the situation. I mean, you know, well, it,
4: to give Officer Regina Meeks the benefit of the doubt. At that time, the guy had already left. She's on a mission to find some missing kids. Right. So she's probably thinking, OK, he's not in there. I'm gonna, I, I can probably just drive around and I'll run into him and get him that away. Right. But what is unacceptable is the next day when they have found the bodies and the bodies were found very close to this Bojangles restaurant. And so and then they're thinking, OK, a guy came out of the bayou where the bodies were found covered in mud and blood. We need that, right? So they go in there, and they get just a very minuscule scraping of blood samples, and there were a pair of glasses, sunglasses that the guy left behind. And you wear glasses, and you wear glasses, Barry, Jason. You know glasses are the perfect. Thing for collecting fingerprints, yeah. right? Sure. But Detective Ridge threw the glasses away and he threw a toilet paper roll completely saturated in blood away. So back to the trial, back to the courtroom. If you remember when the jury went out, what did you think was going to happen? I sincerely believed that we would go home, they would find us not guilty, that they would be able to totally ignore all the flaming prejudicial stuff that the prosecution was bringing up about satanism and everything. And look at the case for what it was and follow the evidence. See,
2: and this is, very, yeah. this is very interesting because one of the things that we've identified as a risk factor in being wrongfully convicted is just being innocent. <laughs> I mean, any objective observer watching the way the evidence went in at that trial would have told you, Jason, that you were in big trouble. <laughs> right. But an innocent person thinks, "Oh, it's all a big mistake. It's just the way you exactly. said." Thank God they're collecting all this saliva from me and a footprint and DNA and hairs cuz, you know, this will all prove that I didn't do it. Right. Right. So I can't begin to tell you the number of stone cold, innocent people I've spoken to who, when you read the transcripts of their trial, and you're one of the few that we have a video of your trial, you'd say, oh, my God, they must have been terrified that, you know, they were going down. And yet innocent people don't think that because they say this system should work. This is some horrible mistake that's going to be corrected.
4: And you're told all your life that the purpose of the judicial system is to find the truth when really it's to get a conviction.
3: Okay, but then the jury comes back in. And the worst thing imaginable happens, and you're sentenced to life in prison.
4: The first thing I thought about was my mom and brothers. Uh, As I told you, we were putting our lives back together. My brother Matthew was 14. My little brother Terry was 9. Well, during the trial, school starts back up, and my little brothers have to go back to school. They harassed my brothers, and so my brothers would get into fights with kids in the school, and they'd go to the principal's office, and the principal would be like, oh, you're his brother, so they get expelled. For my mom, her employer— the trucking agency in Memphis tells her, hey, I understand you're going to want to be at the hearings and the, the trial for your son. And that's all fine. And Danny, you just won't have a job to come back to. Thankfully, our trailer was owned, our car was owned, but they didn't have money to pay for electricity anymore. They got food stamps so they could eat, but they couldn't put gas to come and visit me or anything very often. It, I think I saw him just a small handful of times. And so I thought about them, you know, not only what they've gone through, but what they may continue to face because of this, because at the time, even though they were being treated like this, I thought, well, when the jury finds me innocent, these people will come forward and apologize to all of us. And my brothers would be able to go back to school. My mom will get her job back and things will be fine. But that wasn't the case, you know, and, and so. I worried more for them than for myself. That's remarkable. I don't know if you know how remarkable
3: that sounds. I mean, it's so crazily selfless, especially at your young age and facing what you were facing. And so
4: we've been through a lot together as a family over the years.
5: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
1: Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
0: Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
3: So then you end up getting sent to maximum security prison.
4: Right. When you first go to prison and, and you're not going to death row, you go to what's called a diagnostic unit, and that's where they evaluate you mentally and physically to determine what your parent unit in the department of corrections will be, because they have a myriad of prisons on various different old slave plantations in the South, and each of them are different and in different ways by age and your strength and things like that. And when I went to diagnostics, they, they saw me like you saw me as a small, innocent kid. And, and, and at diagnostics, they were like, we've got to send you to one of two places, Jason, or you're not going to make it. PC, Protective Custody, or what's called SPU, Suicide Prevention Unit. And Suicide Prevention Unit, you, you will have your own cell. And, you know, I looked at it like this. At the time, we didn't have very many people on our side. In fact, it was just us. And I was thrust into this incredibly impossible situation. And I was escorted everywhere I went in the prison. And so I'd see the people in SPU going to chow, and they'd be doing the Thorazine shuffle because they're so heavily medicated. And I had a fear that if I acquiesced and let them put me in SPU, that they would forcefully medicate me and I would lose my mind and my ability to think and reason and to fight. And so I said, no, I can't do that. And as far as the PC protective custody, anybody knows if you are saying you are so weak that you need protection, that people are going to see that and prey on you even more. And so I knew I had to some way, some fashion stand on my own two feet in there and earn everybody's respect, from the inmates and guards alike. And they said, well, if you're not going to one of these places, we're going to have to send you to Varner. And at the time, they had just shipped all these guys from the Little Tucker unit to Varner, and they were destroying the place. They said it was just chaos and destruction and just incredibly violent place. And that's where they were going to have to send me. And I just told them, well, if that's what you got to do, you got to do it. And so they did eventually send me to Barner unit. And it, it, it was everything they said it was. How did you survive there? And, you know, the, by the grace of God, you know, as you said, I guess I'll uh, say I was incredibly lucky, but I was incredibly blessed, too. Uh, I went in there. They opened up and Mr. Patton stepped out and his clerk stepped out and Mr. Patton says, MA May I'm Mr. Patton, the classification officer. I'll be assigning you to your housing unit. And this is my clerk mojo. And they tell me you got to stand up for yourself in here or these people will just will run you over and turn you into a sex slave and all these horrible things and make you pay money for protection and stuff like that. And so they assigned me to seven barracks and seven barracks at the Varner unit is intake barracks. I walked down the hall. And as I'm walking, I'm walking next to this barracks, and it's got bulletproof glass three stories high. And these guys are beating on it, right? It's plexiglass. It's got chicken wire in it. And there are cell bars on the inside of it going all the way up three stories. And I look, and these guys are literally climbing this thing. They are climbing it above one another hanging on to the bars looking at me beating the glass and pointing at me because they've been watching the trial on tv and the hearings and stuff for an entire year it's like a pep rally right they're finally going to have their hands on me right and i get there and sergeant ivy's working the door and he tells me he says if you go in there and stand up for yourself i got your back if not they got you and i'm just holding i only thing i have Is a Bible, a couple of letters from my mom. That's it, in a little paper bag. And they open the door and put me in there. And next thing I know, somebody swings a fist at me. I duck that one. The next one catches me, and I'm fighting immediately. The door opens back up. There's mace sprayed. Sergeant Avi's yanking people off of me. I'm on the ground. And he says, are you ready to go to PC now? Do you need to catch out? And the guys are hollering, catch out bitch, catch out, oh, all these horrible things, you know, which catch out means to leave the barracks and to go into protective custody. And like I said, you know, I knew I needed to earn these people's respect because I did not know how long I would be there. I know I'm innocent, but I don't know how long I'm going to be in this prison. And so I tell them, no, leave me. And next thing I know, we go from the day room tier downstairs. The guys like push all the racks up against the wall. They circle around us and I'm fighting this guy and then I'm fighting this guy and there's people hitting me from behind. So it's kind of orderly and fair. But then again, it's kind of not. And so I fight the whole barracks that Friday, everybody. And then. They call shower call and the barracks next door, eight barracks. They call two barracks at a time to go to shower. The shower holds a hundred people. And so when I get there, I got to fight all these guys from eight barracks. And so I fought all weekend. My whole face was swollen up. My fists were swollen up. My body was beat. And so I do this all weekend I get into fights in the chow hall even like because there's even other people from other barracks is wanting to get to me in the chow hall and stuff like that. Come Monday morning, I'm I'm barely even able to walk, you know, and and like the guys are like just pushing me and and guiding me a bit and which way to go and stuff because I can't even see even less than I normally do because my eyes and stuff are all swollen up. And I just remember thinking that whole weekend about this job out in the fields, whole squad, there's going to be sunshine. There's going to be a dawn, and I'm going to get to witness that. I was just looking forward to that first dawn, you know, that, that morning air. And so there was a part of me just, no matter how bad it was, I was just looking forward to that first dawn. I'm like, if I can make it to that, you know, if I can make it to that, that's something good. And, and, and I do, you know, I get there, and, I, and they have us march in what they call a deuce, two by two, and you march and you go through the Sally Port and they count you off and, and everything, and you're a part of what's called hoe squad. And they march me way off out in the fields and in the country and everything, and I'm in the middle of the line. We're cleaning out this ditch of Bermuda grass, and the gouger, whose job it is to, like, talk smack to you to make you work harder, says, Bowen, drop your hoe. So I drop my hoe. He says, step out of the line. I step out of the line. He says, Sergeant Norris wants to speak to you. And Sergeant Norris is up on the heel on his horse. And I go walking towards him, stumbling towards him, more like it. And he says, walk over to that truck where the major is. He wants you. And so I stumble up to this truck. And the major is the field major over the entire field operations. His name is Gibson. And he's got his pistol out on the driver's side door. And he yells out over my head, I'm taking Baldwin with me. And he says, you better keep up. I'd hate to have to kill you for escape. And so he starts driving down this dirt road out on these old plantation fields. And I'm running trying to keep up with him. I was done so bad that weekend. I think I have a size 12 boot on one foot, a size 10 on the other. I don't have any socks on. My feet are sliding around. I've already got blood blisters on my feet and everything. Of course, I'm all beat up. My hands now are like bleeding from blisters, not just the tops from fighting, but my hands from blisters and stuff. And he's saying all these things I've been hearing from people, all these hateful things, you know. And I already know that There's no talking to him. There's no communicating with him because he already believes what he wants to believe. And he's calling me this horrible, satanic child murderer and how I'm going to die and deserve to die. And we get way so far away. Like, even though I'm blind, like I could look back and still see a stretch of white. But I kept going further and further and further. And the white just disappeared over the horizon. And it's just me and him way out here and he's feels and he's got his gun on me, and we stop, and he looks me in the eye and says, you killed those boys. You deserve to die, and I tell him the same thing I told Judge Burnett. I tell him I'm innocent, and we just sit there, and he's got his gun in my face, and we sit there. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if he was thinking, if I kill Jason, that makes me a child killer, too. I don't know if he was thinking that. I don't know if he looked at me and saw his son. I don't know if he just looked at me and saw me as a scum of the earth. But a long time dragged by, and he took the gun back, cranked the vehicle back up, and says, come on, we're going back. And he turned the vehicle around, and I made the long march back to my squad, put me back in the middle of the line. I mean, this is the craziest fucking story imaginable. We're going to fast forward
3: to 18 years later, right? So now you've been in prison for longer than you had been alive before you went to prison. Exactly. You were 16 when you got arrested. That was a big
4: deal to me, too, when it happened.
3: 18 years in prison, and now, finally, the tide turns, the public sentiment turns, and the government realizes that they've got the wrong guys. Exactly. They don't want to let you out, but they realize that they're going to have to. And so then one day you get offered sort of a, almost like a Sophie's Choice, right? Because they came to you and offered an Alfred plea. And Barry, could you just speak on an Alfred plea for a second? This
2: is a plea where, in theory, there's no admission of guilt. Sometimes they call them nolo contendre pleas, where you say, I know that the state has enough evidence if they take it to trial that they arguably could get a conviction, but I am innocent. And then they basically say, okay, we're going to sentence you to time served, but you get a conviction on your record and to a lesser charge. But that was the the horrible choice that you, uh, Jason, were offered, and uh, it was a deal that would cover everyone.
3: Right. And that's the tricky part, right? Because right. she had resolved that you were never going to take an Alfred plea because right. you had worked in the law library. You knew what you were doing. You're now a man right. and, and you're a smart guy as well. And so you had made this decision, but they made it impossible
4: for you to stick to your guns because of the fact that they were going to execute your friend. Is that Right. right? they had my best friend's life at stake. I remember it very well it was a Wednesday August the 10th of uh, 2011. I, at this time I'm working in the school department um, I'm helping people get their GEDs and stuff like that and I came in from work and they're like, "Bowen, go back to the control center you got an attorney visit and I remember thinking anytime I got an attorney visit it's scheduled well in advance and I get there and it's Blake and he says, what if I told you you could go home tomorrow and I said I hear a butt in there and so he explains <laughs> to me <laughs> the alpha plan. I told him, no, we have an evidentiary hearing set for December the 22nd, which isn't that far away. And we have all the evidence on our side. We're in front of what I believe to be a reasonable judge, Judge Lacer. We're going to prove our innocence and we're going to win and we're going to go home. But the choice wasn't all mine. I can make that choice for myself because you've heard how horrible it was for me going in. Well, by this time, I'd won. The respect of the guards, I'd won the respect of the inmates, and instead of people cursing me and beating me, they were hugging me and praying for me, wishing for my well-being. And so even though it was not a life I deserved being in prison, it was a life I had built at the same time. So it wasn't so bad at that point. But for Damien, he's on death row. It's like being in the hole all the time. And even if they didn't kill him for decades more, his health was declining. He's basically being tortured every single day. And there wasn't anything really to say that they wouldn't execute him because that was their intent. There, I had this real nightmare the entire time I was in there that one day they actually did execute Damien and honestly after the Alford plea was brought to me and they said it was all or nothing and I thought to myself if I did not accept this Alford plea and they eventually killed Damien I would not be able to live with myself because I basically had the power to save his life and so I had to make the decision I had to say what is most important is it my reputation or is it an innocent man's life And I had to make that choice because that's what is real. That's the realest thing, to save an innocent life. And so to hell with my reputation, you know. And it's not just your reputation. It's
3: also the fact that you can't sue for compensation. Exactly. And you're still a convicted felon. And and at
4: any moment, they can come and just take me and and accuse me of something, just as they've done before, that I'm totally innocent of. And they can put me in prison for 21 years. Right, because of your record, yes.
2: And let's not forget, because this is a great dilemma, having been involved in assisting all the different lawyers in this case, because by this point, there was a legal team representing you, there was a legal team representing Damien, one representing Jesse the way it should be because of these kinds of potential conflicts, although everybody had been working together in gathering all this evidence. People, you know, even frankly, ordinary criminal defense lawyers don't understand this. That innocent people who have been in prison for so long, it is such a big part of your identity. It is yourself. I mean, so many clients, if they had offered you parole, right, Right. if you admit to committing the crimes, you would have turned that down. Exactly. Yeah. And, And so you were going to fight for your innocence no matter what. And to make you give that up so that your best like friend didn't get ex- executed is one of the worst coercive, and as you said, it's a Sophie's choice. We all felt horrible for you. I mean, you felt horrible for everybody, but, right. you know, we all knew how horrible that was for you in particular. You are so articulate and so well-read and so insightful. I've never asked you, I mean, did you get a GED or what was your level of education by the time you were getting out?
4: I only filed one grievance the entire time I was incarcerated, and it was for my education. After I did my initial 60 days on what they call a whole squad, you go up for classification and you can get a different job, and they gave me a job in the kitchen. Well, like you know, I was arrested on my last day. school for the 10th grade. And so I put in a request for interview to go to school to get my GED. They wrote me back very quickly, said, you have life without. You don't need an education. Wow. And so I filed my only grievance and said, my education is important to me. I need school. And it went through the processes and I won and they let me go to school and I got my GED. Thanks to the movement, because of the movies, WM3.org, they put together a um, college fund and paid for me to get some college education. and I wasn't able to get a complete college education in there, but I was able to get a lot of education. And it followed me here, and now I've got my associate's degree. I'm about to go back to school for my bachelor's with the hope to go to law school after that. So now... Here you
3: are. You've just moved from Seattle to Austin. And tell right. us about this organization, because now you, like so many of the exonerees, you are somebody who is standing up for the rights of others to help other people who've been wrongfully convicted, to prevent people from being wrongfully convicted. And you have your own organization. You're now the deputy director. Congratulations. Thank you.
4: So can you tell us about that? Um, There's proclaimed Justice. My good friend, John Harden, and I built this organization's to help People like me, like Damien and Jesse, who who are in prison forever for something they didn't do. There are a lot of amazing and beautiful organizations that do this, like you know, like the Innocence Project. There are still so many people that need help, and we can't possibly cover them all. After experiencing what I experienced, I don't want people to suffer that. I don't want anybody else to go through that. And so, the people who are, I want to rescue from it, and I want policy change to make it more difficult for innocent people to be found guilty. And if people,
3: Jason, if people want to help Proclaim Justice, it's ProclaimJustice.org? Correct. And you can go to the website. You have the Instagram as well, at right. Proclaim Justice. Well, let's go to you first, Barry, because I want you to have the last word. So, Barry, what do you take away from all of this? And what, what can people do?
2: Well, you know, there are innocence organizations all across the country, frankly, now even the world, as part of our Innocence Network and other organizations such as Proclaim Justice, where people can get involved. You should look at the innocence organization in your area, whether you live in California or Texas or New York or any place you know there is a local innocence organization that you can get involved with and the issue is just get involved these organizations need help spreading the word raising money but now we're at a point in time in our country's history where people have to get involved on the local level. Who's gonna be elected district attorney? Everybody should care about that. We need progressive district attorneys who care about justice. In each different jurisdiction, there are issues on the ballot or in the state legislature that the policy department at the Innocence Project and the innocence organizations in our network are pushing in virtually every state. So there's a lot of ways to get involved.
3: Jason, I'm going to turn it over to you for last words. What would
4: you like to share? Educate yourselves. One of the most maddening and infuriating things its a phrase that I've encountered as being an innocent. And it's this phrase right here. They all say that, right? You've heard this when, when you say, well, I'm innocent. And someone shuts you down by basically saying they all say that. Educate yourselves, people. Learn that innocent people do go to prison innocent people do fall victim to the justice system and they don't all say that just the innocent ones the people who go to prison who are actually guilty the justice system makes it easier for them because they can make deals and things like that and take a plea bargain but when you're innocent you can't do that only thing you can do is say i'm innocent and next thing you know you're going to jury trial and they're trying to basically take your entire life from you and so it's much more difficult when you're innocent than is it when you are guilty
3: Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.
5: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey,
3: documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard hitting episode today, a lot of controversy well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists.
5: You get a shot, but the individuals
1: behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human.
4: This has been
5: Doc Talk. Thank Thank you. you. Great conversation.
0: Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented.